So Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold and much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Lord, we thank you for your words. We say it is precious to us because they are your words. And because they point us to the Lord Jesus. Might he be big this morning, we pray. Might he be the one whom we leave rejoicing in. In his name. Amen. So one of the um, really big uh, apologetic issues that folk who wouldn't call themselves Christian often talk about or ask about goes along the lines of this. Well, if your God is so amazing and if this gospel you speak of is so good, and if it is so powerful, if it's able to transform lives and to make a, make a difference and to unite people, why, why is the church big picture so divided, they say? That is, I look at the corporate collective outworking of this good news you speak to me about, And I look around the world and it's not great viewing, is it? So is the gospel really that powerful? Is the good news really that good, they say? Why is the history of the church, big picture, littered with pain, heartache and division? Why do we have so many denominations and factions and splits and falling out and all that kind of stuff going on? Have you been asked that question? It's a common one. I think it's quite a complicated question. Um, churches divide for, I think, for good and bad reasons. Good reasons might include a drifting away from the central gospel, from the good news about Jesus. We've seen some of that in our evening sermons, if you've been around in Jude. It often seems to be that the default tendency of our human hearts is to drift away from grace towards works because we don't like to um, think that we can't earn it or deserve it, and we like to be proud. And so a split over a return to grace, a return to the authentic gospel, I think that's possibly a painful thing, but a very good thing. Or if a church goes wrong on some other key doctrine, who God is, who Jesus is. Or if a church goes wrong on a lifestyle issue, an encouragement perhaps to live a certain way that dishonours Jesus or to not pick up on a way that dishonours Jesus. I would suggest that those things are necessary. Remember Paul urges Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely, he says. Paul will come down hard on places where they've strayed from a key truth like that. Having said that, I think it's fair to say as well that much church division is due to human sin. 
Churches split, new churches start over reasons of personal preference or style or secondary issues. To to use the language of Paul from this passage, verse 1, over disputable matters. Romans 14, verse 1. Issues where, as far as we can see, seems to be the context here, there might well be room for breadth from the scriptures. Issues over things where godly believing, Bible believing Christians come out in different places. Issues that need wisdom and grace. How are we to treat other Christians that we disagree with? How are we to treat Christians who are not like us? They're interesting questions. This this section of Romans, if you know the letter... And Paul's train of thought has been, this is all worship. Do you remember 12 verse 1 onwards? Everything is worship. Jesus wants every little bit of our lives. Every bit is to be a God bit, he says. And the passage just beforehand, we're to love each other. At root, that was what the law was about, 13.8 onwards. And yet, friends, we live in an age where people are very keen to, to look to community. They like the kind of life-on-life discipleship and being in each other's houses. And Christian life is not just about me and God, but me and you and God. And we need each other. We're not meant to do this alone. And there's all really good things there. We have all these one-anothers. We like community until it gets in the way of our agenda. What do you do when you disagree? What do you do when you don't like the way we do music or preaching or websites or whatever it might be? What do you do if you don't like the coffee? Do you go somewhere else to find a church with better coffee? What do you do if your church is made up of all kinds of different groups? What do you do if you said in week one, Ephesians 2, you've got half your church from a Jewish background, half your church from a Gentile background, and suddenly they have to be friends? And eat together? What does that look like? How does that work out? If you spend your whole life not eating bacon sandwiches and suddenly you go to Bannisters with a group of mates from church and they're there on their sausage sandwiches with bacon, what does that mean? How do you deal with that? Maybe better. What happens genuinely if we begin to build bridges and make an impact in our diverse area? Some of the different cultures and classes and groups start kind of coming into the church community and they come to faith and Sunday mornings, what does that look like? How do we navigate through this? Do they just have to lump it? They have to do things our way, be like us. What does the gospel demand? What does Romans 14 say to us? We said before, it's an important question, because if we just end up splitting to cater for everyone, you have a lot of churches with very few people. And then Oxford looks in and says, well, this gospel you speak of, and this God you're telling me about, maybe he's just for people of that background at that church, or that background at that... It's confusing, it's difficult. Maybe he's not for people like me. He's just a little God who's come for this kind of person who are quite like each other, really. 
And it seems to be, well, I've had experiences where people who are removed or who don't feel welcome when we disagree and squabble and fight or do things our way, they just kind of don't necessarily go and find another church. They may just walk out altogether on Christ. It seems to me this passage, Romans 14, has a lot to say to us about that kind of thing. That's the sort of area we're thinking about this morning. Um, So let's jump into it. I want to show you, if I can, first of all, big picture, if you like, some of the key ideas and where it's all heading, to show you, if I can, how the passage works. Um, And then we will sort of zoom in on each half. And so 1 to 12, if you have a look down, I think is primarily about judging, or better still, not judging those who have a different emphasis from us, different views, And then 13 to the end is more about how do we use the freedom we've been given in the gospel, how do we use that freedom to those people whom we don't agree with or who have different views from us. But I think it's all heading um, to chapter 15, 5 to 7. I think that's the conclusion, that is the kind of flow That is where it all ends up. So let me just read them for us and you'll see if you get lost in some of the arguments in 14, find your way back again to 15, 5 to 7. I think that is the summary. So may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 7, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So verse 5 again, May the God who gives endurance give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. If you, if you know your Bibles, you know Philippians, you'll kind of sense some overlap with um, chapter 2, sort of 3, 4, 5 and onwards. It's about how we think, it's the attitude going on in our heads that, treat how we, that affect how we treat others. The churches are to be full of diverse people, but people like Jesus, who have the same attitude of mind. Then have a look at each half. Um, 1 to 12, something like, judging is for Jesus. And in a nutshell, Paul says, we are not to judge each other on these matters, but rather to accept one another. And it seems to be the problem in this divided congregation in Rome that Paul is writing to is they have been judging each other. So let me kind of fly over and pick out some of the words and imagine what church life looks like when you sort of try and get inside some of these words. So verse 3, the one who who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? Or on the next page, verse 10, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? Language of contempting, of language of judging. And imagine church life where that kind of stuff's going on. It seems that they've forgotten. Actually, Christ is the one who will judge. And actually, he has the God-given right to do that. See verse 10, he continues, For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. 
So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God, therefore stop passing judgment on one another. Actually, before we just go past that, don't, don't miss that. We will one day have to give an account of our lives before him. Paul is very clear, God will judge each and every person who has ever lived. If you're a Christian here this morning, that is not meant to fill you with dread, because you are in Christ, you are trusting him, you are made alive in him. That will be a day when we are so thankful for Jesus. Although maybe it's a conversation for another time, it it will be a day for even those in Christ, he will ask us, well what did you do with the stuff that I gave you? those gifts I loaned you, that time I gave you, what did you do with them? For those who are not in Christ, it will be an awful day. And so let me encourage you to turn to him, if you haven't already. Paul's point, though, is to clarify that judgment is the job of Jesus, and not our job. We're not to judge, he says, we are to accept. Again, remember where it's all going, 15.7, accept one another. Then it's where it starts off, 14.1, accept the one whose faith is weak. Bookends of acceptance. Why, end of verse 3, God has accepted you. So that's the flow. There is judgmentalism, there is contempt, there is division in the church, there is not acceptance, there is not love. Why? Well, we've got two groups. We've got two groups that he outlines. We have what he calls the weak and the strong. And they are to do with deep-seated convictions, it seems, about clean and unclean. Probably flowing from Jewish Christians with their history being rooted in the Old Testament law. So it seems to be to do with diet, and it seems to be to do with days. Diet, that is, what you can and can't eat. Or days, particular, sacred, set-apart days. And why are, you not, um, why are you not celebrating them or acknowledging them, they seem to be saying. Foods that have never been eaten, that they're now told, you can eat, it's fine. Days they've always observed and celebrated, now told, it doesn't matter. And so he describes some as strong and some as weak. And before we get cross with Paul for for judging people, (laughs) hypocrites, he's just told us not to judge. He's judging the weak, isn't he? Now, I think weak means not inferior. Weak means tender conscience. And so strong does not mean powerful and great. Strong means tough conscience. And again, it's still all slightly kind of hypothetical and we're thinking, what does this actually mean? Let's try and put a bit of flesh on it. Imagine it's a... Oh, the sun's gone in. Imagine it's sunny, and we're about four months in advance. Barbecue season just starting. So Sunday afternoon, you've been to church, picked up a few friends, come around to your house. Bunch of mates, hospitality, good news. And you have a friend there, we're going to call him Theodore. Is there anybody here called Theodore? Great, I'm going to use that name. Theodore, verse 2, eats only vegetables. So it's barbecue, and thankfully you have got vegetables and tofu kebab sorted. You've got couscous salad, because you thought, well, maybe he's going to come. You've prepared in advance. And Paul says, we're not making a comment on vegetarianism here. There's something different going on. 
But actually it's striking because the Old Testament didn't specify that was a necessity. He eats only vegetables. Probably what is going on is that he is avoiding any kind of meat because that meat may have been sacrificed to idols at the time, as lots was at the time. So just to be sure, just to be safe, just to be certain, he only eats vegetables. It's not an issue. Better be safe than sorry. So you've got Theo, couscous salad, tofu kebab. And then you've got Terence. We haven't got any Terry's, we're okay. Um, he eats anything and everything, verse 2 and 3. Because Terence, you know, he knows his Bible. He knows that all food is clean now. He knows that the Old Testament dietary laws have been fulfilled in Christ. He knows actually that idols are nothing because God is so powerful and Christ has defeated them. Um, and so he ticks, tucks into everything. And Terence is there with his burger and his steak and he's saying to Theodore, they're really tasty. What, why aren't you tucking in? Why aren't you eating with me? Look, couscous and vegetables, they are a side dish. They are not the main event. Let me give you some sausages, burgers, steaks. But Theo, it's been, it's been a whole life of not eating these things. He doesn't want to pollute himself. It's a step too far. What do you mean you can't? It's only a steak. Seriously. Just get over it. Just eat it. What is wrong with you? Shall we open the Bible together and let's do a Bible study? It's striking because actually eating together is such a picture of the gospel as well. The fellowship that the gospel brings about. Different backgrounds, cultures, stories, united because of the cross. It's why actually as a church we prioritise church lunches. Once a month we know it's a hassle, we know it doesn't work that well for small children, we know it mucks up naps, we, we know it means we all have to kind of compromise an effort and it's hard work, but to sit together and to eat together is a picture of family, of love, of unity, of kindness. And actually a picture of how God treats us as well. Themes of food and banqueting. Think of how Jesus sat and ate with people of all kinds of situations so that the religious establishment called him a glutton and drunkard. Think of the Lord's Supper pointing ahead to the great banquet. Heaven being described as a meal. Meals are important. Which means to set up stumbling blocks for people and to divide over things like this actually really matters. It is undoing what God has joined. It is dividing what God has done and brought together. The principle in in this thing here is discussions over disputable matters in Paul's eyes. But to remember that God has accepted them. Don't you judge them. Don't you live in such a way that they stumble because the Lord has accepted them. And anyway, he continues, and it gets a bit complicated. He says, well, before you're too quick to snigger on your your nose at them, how convinced are you anyway by what you believe? Are you happy to do X, Y, and Z because you've carefully thought it through? So verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in their own mind. Or if you're honest, do you do X, Y, and Z because you've just followed your tribe? And you just do what everyone else does, because it's easier. 
because we're great at being sheep. Whether you regard a certain day as special or not, or whether you regard a certain food as off limits or not, actually you need to have done the work yourself. You need to be accountable for your actions. And the problem is, when we judge each other, we end up putting ourselves in the place of God. So if I see myself as the ultimate judge, and you see yourself as the ultimate judge of what is right and wrong, and we disagree, it gets messy, and churches divide. And But if we both know Jesus is the judge, then in one sense, even if we disagree over some of these disputable matters, we can, we can bow to him, respect him, accept one another because of him. Jesus is judge. You can leave him to do his job. You just accept those whom he has accepted. second half of the passage then is a moving on from there. He says, rather than assassinating them in some way, ripping them apart mentally, what you ought to be doing with the freedom you have is to help one another. So if in the first half judging is for Jesus, in the second half liberty is for loving. That is, we use the freedom that he gives us to love each other well. We, we bend to the other. Even Christians whom we disagree with over these disputable matters. Have a look at verse 15. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. So we're back to barbecue again. And the afternoon's moved into evening. It's the same characters. Strong man Terence. Plate full of meat. Tough conscience. He's been eating meat all afternoon and all evening. He's got the meat sweats. (laughs) And he's been on at Theodore the whole time. Tempting him with steak and sausage. And there is Theo, tender conscience. And he started to think, you know, I'm not so sure about these Christians anymore. I was pretty convinced by Jesus being the Messiah. But the way these guys are acting, I just feel uncomfortable and I feel judged and I'm not so sure anymore. In fact, I'm not tempted to eat meat. Actually, I'm tempted to leave. And Paul says of himself, he is, verse 14, he is one of the strong I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. He will happily eat meat, but because of his love for them, he will forego what is right. Sorry, forego that right for the sake of those with a more tender conscience. And I think this is profoundly challenging for us because we are in a culture of rights. It's actually very countercultural. It's very different. We are told to stand on our rights. Don't look at them. Don't let them change you. Just be true to yourself. Be who you are. But Paul says no. Look at them. Use your freedom to love and to serve them. Don't serve yourself. Put them first. 
This is the loving thing to do. Verse 15, they are distressed. They might be destroyed. See, verse 16, they might speak of what you know as good and say it's bad. Verse 20, we, we might destroy the work of God for the sake of food. It can cause them to stumble. Verse 21, it can cause them to fall. And so Paul says to act lovingly, to be in a kind of community, a church, where we love each other and look to other people's needs before our own is, is vital. What church is all about, verse 17, his kingdom is about righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. It's what ought to define us. We ought to be thoughtful and careful and other-centred. Peace and mutual edification means we build up and we don't tear down. It's, It's the way we love people. It's almost as if the default in our natural hearts, the, the muscle memory that we struggle to forget, is thinking it's only about me and what I do. And that just leaves church looking really ugly. And we have factions and divisions and agenda and people standing on their rights and we end up looking like the world. But the kind of community Paul is looking for is one where everyone is looking out for everyone else. We're thinking the whole time, how is my behaviour impacting other people? Is it going to be an issue for them? How do I need to alter my actions, my priorities, to be loving towards them? How can I use the freedom and liberty I have in Christ for everyone else? Imagine a church where everyone wants to be footnotes, and wants everyone else to have their way under Christ. Imagine that. But it's complicated. Because we are so different. Some of you who are so inclined will know at the start of this last week, I put a post on social media. I'm asking for real examples from churches where they've wrestled with some of this stuff in Romans 14, this general idea and concept, how it pans out. How does a majority church culture or group use the freedom it has not to stand on its own rights, but for the sake of the other, for the sake of the minority cultural group, to consider how it impacts on others, how to avoid placing stumbling blocks within churches before others, how to love people well, Um, I thought I'd give you some feedback. Uh, These are relatively global. Um, A few things to say. First one, I I did receive a message from one Christian who thought it was judgmental and unkind to call people strong and weak, actually. They were confused by why Paul would do that and what he was getting at. And isn't he just judging people? Um, So that's an interesting one. Um, The key thing, the key example I think came through regarding alcohol. So, booze being deliberately avoided at church events for people who were recovering alcoholics or for whom that was an issue still. Um, One guy said their church saw a number of people come to faith who were recovering alcoholics and so they changed the way they did church. They changed social gatherings. They changed communion, the communion wine. Because having wine or, or beer or anything would be detrimental to folk for whom that was a struggle. 
Do you see, so it's the strong majority using their freedom to love those for whom it was a live issue. Another one to do with the way church is conducted. So one example came from someone who has a significant deaf community within their church. And it meant the pastor finishing their sermon early, like Thursday or something, um, which would mean the signers could then prepare for the Sunday. And so everyone could be included, everyone would understand, everyone would be a part of things. Another example was from a youth group, um, and they only sang one song each week because there was an autistic boy who so loved and enjoyed that song that to love him and to preferentially serve him each and every week it was the same song. And that was a deliberate decision they had taken as a group. Uh, Comments to do do with singing. I think we're relatively good at this, but it's using intelligible language in our hymns, not necessarily using the archaic or the academic stuff for those who, who don't have a master's in theology or haven't grown up through church using language that people understand, can engage with. Another one came back to do with what you wear. Actually, this was really interesting. This was from a friend who was um, a pastor of a, a multicultural church in London. And there were a couple of things that happened in a small space of time. One person came up and was being interviewed about a missions trip that they were going out on. Um, and another issue was someone leading the worship um, who had exposed a bit of midriff, shall we say. And for some of the people in the room, particularly of um, Nigerian culture, there was one Nigerian woman for whom that was particularly problematic because displaying a bit of midriff is essentially equated with looseness of morals. And actually, that then kick-started a discussion from the church congregation together as a whole about what you wear at the front and whether it's a stumbling block or unhelpful for people and that they never wore that again. Because of some of the cultures in the room, the, the message being given out from the front was an unhelpful one. Stumbling blocks were being set up. Loving one another well through what we wear. You don't know how long it takes me to pick my outfit every Sunday morning. But... <laughs> but you see it's not standing on our rights for the sake of others because the message of our culture would be just wear what you want don't worry about them you are the boss of your own life and yet Paul says no 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 look at everyone else serve them through the decisions that you make and so it's interesting, as we consider the diversity of our city and the increasing diversity of our area, as we work through being better at loving our neighbours, whoever those neighbours might be, as we consider new buildings, increased exposure, increased visibility and opportunities, it kind of raises questions for us as to how we do church, the culture of our church and our community. And of course, in one sense, you can never have a church that accommodates everything to everyone. But we can work really hard at not having obvious stumbling blocks for people. The way we do things, what is normal or perceived as normal here. It's not just about preference, it's not just, well, I'd like to sing four songs in a row, please, so 
Come on, let's do that. It's more to do with the culture of the church, with disputable matters, with how we use our freedom in a way that won't offend people. We know the gospel is going to offend people. The gospel always offends people. We don't want the way we do church. We interact with each other to offend people. And again, remember why this is. Verse 5. 15 verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we want to be a church that loves people well because we have been loved well. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we confess to you, even as people who are yours, the tendency of our hearts to serve self. And so we pray that we might grasp more of your love and acceptance and kindness shown to us. And that that would be lived out in the way we relate to each other. Lord, give us patience with each other, we pray. Give us the love for people as you have a love for people. Reveal to us our blind spots. The way we currently do church that might be unhelpful. Change us, please, to be more like your son. We thank you for him. Thank you that he has accepted us and so brought you praise. In his name we pray. Amen.